0: DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lange, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature. With Joseph Pierce, I'm your host. Chris McGregor. Pope John Paul II described Charles Dickens' books as filled with love for the poor and a sense of social regeneration, warm with imagination and humanity. Such true charity premiates Dickens' novels and ultimately drives the characters either to choose regeneration or risk disintegration. In Great Expectations, Pip Symbolic of the pilgrim convert, gains both improved fortunes and a growth in wisdom, but as he acquires the latter, he must relinquish the former, ending with a wealth of profound goodness, not of worldly goods. That the message of Charles Dickens was a Christian one is unmistakable. Reminiscent of an Augustinian model, one of reflection, conversion, and moral improvement, Pip undergoes an internal change that manifests itself in his profound contrition for his earlier deeds, and his equally profound resolution to make amends. As we travel with Pip, we find that that Dickens leads us to an acceptance of worldly limitations and an anticipation of final salvation. We now begin our discussion on Charles Dickens and Great Expectations. Let's talk about Charles Dickens, one of the greats in all literature.
1: G.K. Chesterton would certainly argue that probably the greatest novelist that the English language has ever produced. And I'm not sure I agree completely with Chesterton, only because... Well, there are others out there. <laughs> we mentioned Jane Austen the other day. Jane Austen mm-hmm. didn't write as much, but I think what she did write was better. But Dickens is wonderful, marvellous, very profound, very healthy in the sense that he's bringing to uh, Victorian England and to subsequent generations that read him uh, profoundly and inescapably... Christian morality and a Christian reading of life and how that Christianity responds to and reacts against a growing secularism and an increasingly technological age and an increasingly industrial age and increasingly relativistic age so in that sense he's profoundly modern in the sense that he's 21st century because these issues of course which were very much alive in uh, Victorian England uh, are still very much alive in 21st century America.
0: For Dickens his popularity may not have taken off to the extent that it did had it not been for the unusual means at the time of the communication of his stories because he didn't sit down and write books necessarily that the public purchased. He was brought to an awareness in a totally different way.
1: Yeah, in those days there were publications, journals that serialized fiction as as a large part of what they did, and people would wait for the new issue to come out so they could read the latest installment of the latest novel, and Dickens was a a master of this, and many of his novels, you rightly say, were written as serialized installments for these journals. I think that the whole episodic structure of them is is a reflection of that, should we say, artistic necessity.
0: Starting out with the Pickwick Papers, he changes, as you have just noted, that His style changes and deepens when he has an awareness of the impact that he's actually having on the public.
1: Yeah, one thing we see about Dickens, or as in any great writer, is that he grows in wisdom as he grows older. And I think that that increased gravitas, should we say, that increased moral weight uh, is present in the later works.
0: This is a time of tremendous change, not only in England, but around the world. But really, in the heart of England, there is something happening as far as just the complete changing of the countryside, of the people of how families and communities interact.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's living in an, in an age of rapid change, and that's the other thing. We we don't live in an age of progress so much. We live in an age of, of acceleration. You know, philosophers will tell you something inherently um, unstable about acceleration. Acceleration can't be sustained. Well, Dickens was experiencing this sort of acceleration, the changes in Victorian England. England was, of course, at the pinnacle of its power in the age of Victoria, was the heart of a huge empire, huge and growing during Dickens' time. It was still on the ascent. So it looked as if, you know, everything which was English was good and that the English sort of looked down their supercilious noses at the rest of the world. And what Dickens does, I think, is to show England that she has very little to be supercilious about, that there are many problems close to home. However you know wealthy the nation is, that there's plenty of poverty on the streets, there are families being divided, children are sent out to work. A lot of which, by the way, of course, Dickens experienced himself as a child being forced to work in a blacking factory himself as a child when his father was sent to prison, a debtor's prison. So, you know, Dickens had experienced a life of poverty in, in Dickensian England. Um, mm-hmm. So he was writing from experience and really showing the mirror to modern England that, you know, there's nothing to be too complacent about or too prim and priggish about because there, there are many, many problems close to home that need addressing.
0: The Ignatius Critical Edition shows Great Expectations as the book. For well, the many- first.
1: Yeah. Tale of Two Cities on its way. There will be more Dickens to come.
0: Oh, wonderful. But for Great Expectations to be the flagship, the first ship of the Dickens novels, is really quite wonderful because so many of us are familiar with David Copperfield of Oliver, of, again, Christmas Carol, so many other things, even though Christmas Carol is the perennial short story that so many of us are familiar with. Great Expectations really is that tale of conversion of the character Pip.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderfully profound conversion story from a boy who's corrupted early on by the promise of worldly success, uh, and then having already got this notion in his head, he he then comes into material wealth and he leaves those rustics who love him, leaves the life as a a blacksmith's apprentice to become a, a businessman in London, to prosper, so it seems, materially, and then becomes a social climber, an elitist. And then, of course, All this comes crumbling around, then a twist in the tale. The person he looked down his nose upon is the person who's actually his greatest benefactor. So all of these twists in the story, leading in the end, of course, to a profound spiritual conversion where he comes to realize that it's the love that he was shown by others when he was young, which was the most important thing, uh, and coming to understand that love and the necessity of self-sacrifice as a correlative of that love, that you can't love without there being a price to be paid. And so it's a happy ending, but it's only a happy ending because he loses everything the world has to offer in order to gain the, the pearl of great price.
0: Mm. And that's what makes it different than, say, Oliver Twist or even David Copperfield, is that this particular lead character is... Is not necessarily the likable character, the one that you're rooting for. You keep scratching your head, saying, "What is he doing?"
1: Right. We sort of begin by being sympathetic to him. He's a mere boy, and he has what appears to be a near-death experience from the escaped convict. And we begin by being very sympathetic with him. But then, as you say, we start scratching our heads and why is he doing that? Why is he behaving this way? Why is he treating Joe that way? Joe's been always the the, the father figure who mm-hmm. always de- defends him and protects him. Uh, And you can see that Joe's hurt by this, and Joe always remains completely charitable, in spite of immense provocation, continues to love Pip throughout it all, and that transcendent love, which Pip loses, that's the whole point. And as he starts pursuing the worldly things, he loses this transcendent love and doesn't regain it until his worldly uh, empire comes crumbling
2: down around him. Volume 2, Chapter 20 I hope you have done well. I've done wonderful well.
3: There's others went out along o me, as has done well too. But no man has done nigh as well as me. I'm famous for it.
2: I'm glad to hear it.
3: I hope to hear you say so, my dear boy.
2: Without stopping, to try to understand those words or the tone in which they were spoken, I turned off to a point that had just come into my mind. Have... "'Have you ever seen a messenger you, you once sent to me?' I inquired. "'Since he undertook that trust?'
3: "'Never set eyes upon him. or weren't likely to it.'
2: He, "'He came faithfully, and he brought me the two one-pound notes. "'I was a poor boy then, as you know, and to a poor boy they were a little fortune. "'But like you, I have done well since, and you, you must let me pay them back.' "'You you can put them to some other poor boy's use.' "'I took out my purse. "'He watched me as I laid my purse upon the table and opened it, "'and he watched me as I separated two one-pound notes from its contents. "'They were clean and new, "'and I spread them out and handed them over to him. "'Still watching me, he laid them one upon the other, "'folded them longwise, gave them a twist, "'set fire to them at the lamp.' and dropped the ashes into the tray.
3: May I make so bold,
2: he said then, with a smile that was like a frown, and with a frown that was like a smile,
3: as ask you how you have done well since you and me was out on them lone shivering marshes?
2: How? Huh? He emptied his glass, got up, and stood at the side of the fire with his heavy brown hand on the mantel-shelf. He put a foot up to the bars to dry and warm it, and the wet boot began to steam. But he neither looked at it nor at the fire, but steadily looked at me. It was only now that I began to tremble. When my lips had parted, and had shaped some words that were without sound, I forced myself to tell him though I could not do it distinctly that I had been chosen to succeed to some property.
3: Mademoiselle Warmont uh, ask what property?
2: said he. I faltered. I don't know.
3: Mademoiselle Warmont ask whose property?
2: said he. I faltered again. "'I don't know.'
3: "'Could I make a guess, I wonder?' said the convict. "'At your income, since you come of age. "'As to the first figure now, um,
2: five?' "'With my heart beating like a heavy hammer of distorted action, "'I rose out of my chair and stood with my hand upon the back of it, "'looking wildly at him.'
3: "'Concerning a guardian,' he went on, there ought to have been some guardian or such like, whilst you was a minor. Um, some lawyer, maybe? Uh, as to the first letter of that lawyer's name now, um, would it be uh, J?
2: All the truth of my position came flashing on me and its disappointments, dangers, disgraces, consequences of all kinds, rushed in, in such a multitude that I was borne down by them, and had to struggle for every breath I drew. Put it, he resumed,
3: as the employer of that lawyer, whose name begins with a J and might be Jaggers, uh, put it as he had come over sea to Portsmouth, and had landed there, and had wanted to come to you. However you have found me out, you says just now, "'Well, however did I find you out? "'Why, I wrote from Portsmouth to a person in London "'for particulars of your address. "'That person's name? "'Why, Wemmick?'
2: "'I could not have spoken one word, "'though it had been to save my life. "'I stood with a hand on the chair back "'and a hand on my breast, "'where I seemed to be suffocating. "'I stood so, looking wildly at him, "'until I grasped at the chair, "'when the room began to surge and turn.' He caught me, drew me to the sofa, put me up against the cushions, and bent on one knee before me, bringing the face that I now well remembered and that I shuddered at very near to mine.
3: "'Yes, Pip, dear boy, I've made a gentleman on you. It's me what has done it. I swore that time, sure as ever I earned a guinea, that guinea should go to you.' I swore afterwards, sure as ever I speculated and got rich, you should get rich. I lived rough that you should live smooth. I worked hard that you should be above work. What odds, dear boy? Do I tell it for you to feel an obligation? Not a bit. I tell it for you to know as that there hunted dunghill dog what you kept life in got his head so high that he could make a gentleman.
0: And, Pip! You're him! It's the type of conversion you would have wished for for Scrooge early in his life.
1: Well, yes, except who would wish for Scrooge to be converted in any other way than than he is, (laughs) bearing in mind the story. But yeah, certainly the story of Great Expectations is as much a conversion story as is A Christmas Carol. It takes a lot longer for it to happen because it's a much longer book. But it is necessary for home truths to be brought home to Pip, for Pip to realize reality because until then he's living in his own self-made prison exactly as scrooge is in fact because scrooge does exactly the same thing he's living alone he has no real life at all outside the counting house because that's the prison he's made for himself and pip's worldly success is in reality a prison and he can't escape from that prison until the worldly success evaporates around him
0: that is something that we're encountering more and more every day in our time those choices that we make, whether it's to stay at home and as a female be with a family, raise the children in the beginning, or for the husband or man who gets so caught up in the career that the family is neglected. What Pip is experiencing, I think, while we scratch our heads, is how could I have made that same choice?
1: Right. And many of us have, of course, mm-hmm. you know, is that we've taken the worldly choices when we should have taken the other worldly ones. And we're looking back and maybe scratching our head, not just at Pip, but at our own, our own lives. And, you know, how did we get here? You know, why are we here? We shouldn't be here. And yes, it's, in, in that sense, it is a, a perennially relevant novel because particularly in our day and age and the climate we're living in now, where many people pursued the worldly path to the extent of getting themselves in uncontrollable debt, through credit card mortgages etc and finding that from being what they thought was wealthy to being poor overnight i'm not saying that's something we should wish upon anybody but these are great opportunities for grace great opportunities for conversion and uh, you know, what happens to pippin great expectations what's happening to many people here and you know the great expectations uh, there's an irony in the title because the great expectations are ultimately an illusion because those things do not deliver the goods, literally. It's the simpler things in life that actually bring the satisfaction. And, of course, the word satisfaction comes from the Latin satis, meaning enough. Until you know that you have enough, you're never going to be satisfied. And I think that the world in which we live, which is the world that Pip bought into, is one where we never have enough. We always want more. And somehow or other we'll be happier if we get the new thing or the next thing or the bigger house or the bigger car. As long as it's more, somehow we're gonna be happier. But of course we're never happy because to be happy is to be satisfied, which means to be content with what we have as being enough. So these are of course perennial lessons which Dickens understands and Dickens retells in, in, in many of his novels one way or the other just to remind people in this the world of uh, so-called affluence where the industrial uh, hegemony seems beyond dispute that really actually the the old-fashioned Christian virtues are the ones that bring contentment.
0: This is a wonderful example of what the Holy Father, what the church has been calling those who are in the arts, those who are communicators, as Dickens was in the serialized versions that were going out in the papers to the people at the time, of being expressors of the Christian faith, to witness to the virtues, but doing it in the means of where you're at, not necessarily standing on the corner evangelizing, but he is doing that where he is at in the world with the social tool he has.
1: Exactly. And using his artistic gifts in an incredibly powerful way, I mean, it could be said that Dickens had more success in changing the hearts and minds of people towards an understanding of the necessity of Changing the laws against child labour, against changing the laws against the treating really the people of England as, as slaves, as chattels, because in many ways uh, an industrial labour was more expendable than a slave. So he, through the, through the power, the social conscience, if you like, of his novels, brought about a great deal of change. It was actually much more powerful than anything the organised political movements such as socialism achieved. And and the other thing about Dickens, of course, Dickens doesn't call for big government. Dickens Mm -hmm. calls for the love. Dickens calls for the transformation of hearts. And you have to change hearts and minds to change society. And it's through the love of man for fellow man that you bring about uh, a just society, not through government schemes. But you know, his power, his social conscience in his novels, I haven't done a systematic historical study of it. But I bet the influence of Dickens on the changing of law in late Victorian England was greater than any single politician.
0: It was a time when, again, to feed this industrial machine, you had not just the man leaving the home. I mean, you're leaving the farm in the first place. You're leaving the countryside, the villages. You're coming in. You're in the cities. And the industrial machine is being fed not only by the men but by the women. The mothers are working in the factories and the children. I don't know if we appreciate just how grinding this was to the foundation rock of the family.
1: Well, it had a disastrous and destructive effect on the family unit in working class cities in England, as one would expect. If mothers, fathers, children are all working from in different factories, different hours, of course you have the complete breakdown of the unit because the unit's never together. And again, there's a projection into our own time because we find that it is since the 1950s when we're supposed to be wealthier. It's become necessary for both parents to leave the household when, therefore, we have children that do not see their parents that come home to empty houses or are are farmed out to childcare agencies. So, at a time when we're supposed to be uh, wealthy and more affluent than ever, why is it that we see these same uh, economic forces that were so prevalent in Dickensian England very much around today? I mean, what is true wealth? Is it that both parents have to work so we can afford a car that's $5,000 more expensive than the one we would have had if both parents weren't working? What are our choices? And again, I think this takes us right back to great expectations. This is exactly the dynamic, Mm -hmm. the moral dynamic that drives forward the plot of great expectations. Where is true happiness? Is it to be found in the promises of the world and in particular the the promises of material affluence? Mm -hmm. Or is it to be found in the family and in love?
0: Great expectations is also in the size of the work, is such a wonderful reflecting of a human life that Pip begins out as this child. He's an innocent child who, through the circumstances of the world, again, we were saying, you know, how you're scratching your head how he makes his choices, but it's all the subtlety of the choices. Classic slippery slope. Yeah, and the the
1: subtlety of the choices or the subtlety also of the temptations. He becomes aware that somehow he is uh, an inferior person because of his social background he doesn't have the money or the affluence so that is a subtle temptation that somehow or other he's going to be better as a person if he can move up a rung or two in the social mm-hmm. ladder so it's not just the subtlety of the choices I think the subtlety of the temptations that leads to the choices uh, Dickens doesn't bludgeon us he leads us with great subtlety
0: That's the value of giving the reader, the person who sits down with the novel, the opportunity to give yourself the time to read that novel, not to look for the short story. In the serial, you would do that because that was your television and that was your entertainment, was going out and getting the paper. And so we can understand that episodic type of things. We live it out every day with our television programs. But for someone to miss out on great expectation because you see that it's a, a larger volume, you'd be missing out on the richness of it all. Yeah,
1: I think that, again, it's a question just of changing our psychological approach to reading. You know, that You don't have to read it all in one sitting. You, mm-hmm. you know, things don't have to be instant. We need to slow down. In fact, one good thing about reading and reading great literature is that it helps us to slow down. It's like prayer. Prayer helps us to slow down. Prayer finds a little bit of much-needed silence in our lives. Well, reading great books, does the same thing. So we should pick up a book like Great Expectations, which is very long, and expect to take six months to read it. I mean, it's not going to be the, the whole of our lives, but two or three nights a week, we'll read a chapter. Better still do it with someone else. I mean, my wife and I always have a book that we're reading together, and we've got through some very long books, and it may take us a long time to read them, but eventually you're not thinking about it. When you are going to get to the end? You're just thinking about the next chapter. That's the way that we have to start thinking. We live in a life now where, again, everything's accelerated. Everything has to be instant. Well, you know, the most important things in life are not instant. The most important things in life take a lifetime of development, whether it be a good marriage or whether it be a good book. You don't rush either. You have to work on both. And it rewards more than merit the effort involved in doing so. So, you know, it's just a question of changing our attitude. Pick up a book like this and say, this could be a friend of mine for the next few months.
0: For the Ignatius Critical Editions, we have the assurity just from the gravitas of Ignatius Press itself that these are works that can be transformative if we take that time to ponder and to enter into them. There is a thread of the Holy Spirit's action in teaching us something, and that's, not the term critical, but that's one of the critical reasons why you would want and trust to pick up one of these pieces.
1: Absolutely. Ignatius Press deserves and demands our respect. Anybody that knows the history of Catholic publishing of the last 35 years will know the great work that Ignatius Press has done to bring great Catholic works, fiction and non-fiction, to print uh, or to translate works from other languages. Ignatius Press would not be uh, sponsoring, promoting a series like this unless they saw the power of the great works of Western literature to bring and win hearts and souls to Christ. These great works do lead people to the truth, and they really should be part of every Catholic's reading. We are impoverishing ourselves if we don't allow ourselves to read these great works of Western civilization Western civilization is the product of Christendom, of the Catholic Church ultimately. These works are the product of the Catholic Church to one degree or another. In some cases, they're a reaction against it. But you can learn lessons from the reactions against Catholicism. If you want to argue against secular philosophy, you have to read the secular philosophers. If you want to argue against the modern culture, you have to know how they work. But these great works of literature of Western civilization are part of the wealth of what it is to be a Christian because it's Christianity that's produced them.
0: And works like Great Expectations by Charles Dickens could arguably be lifted up as a work of apologetics. Absolutely. If you look at
1: Charles Dickens' work, it's a defense of traditional Christian ethics, traditional Christian philosophy against a rising tide of relativism and secularism and showing how the latter does not bring fulfillment, but on the contrary, the latter brings injustice and that the only way we can restore some sort of semblance of sanity to modern life is by return to Christian values. And that seems to be Dickens's message. People forget, for instance, that one of the very few things of non-fiction that, that Charles Dickens wrote was the life of Jesus. Mm. He was profoundly Christian, not Catholic, but there's nothing in his novels that could be construed as antagonistic towards a Catholic ethos or a Catholic way of life. And it certainly is the dialectic today between Orthodox Christianity and radical secularism or secular fundamentalism, Dickens is on the side of the angels.
0: Again, uh, great expectations. Uh, and other works of Charles Dickens that will be coming out, Tale of Two Cities. Well, Tale of Two Cities
1: is in the works. we got a good academic with Michael Eschleman, working on that. Um, he's promised me that it, it will be finished by by the middle of twenty eleven. So uh, hopefully that we can have that out in twenty twelve. And of course, you know, Dickens is an author who will be revisiting because you know he's one of these great authors, and I can't really see it being too long before we do David Copperfield, Nicholas Nickleby. I would like to do a Christmas cali. It is only a short story, but it is it's so much a part of the Western psyche of many aspects of the trappings of the modern Christmas we get from dickens yeah we'll continue producing dickens's work eventually we'll get through lots of them i'm sure
0: you've been listening to great works in western literature with joseph pierce to hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs visit discerninghearts.com this has been a production of discerning hearts i'm your host chris mcgregor We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.